Luke and Paul both tell us that Jesus was carrying out the vocation or the the role of the suffering servant of Isaiah. And what I'd like us to think about for a moment this morning is to what was Jesus conscious? Just think about that for a minute. To what was Jesus conscious of? I mean, I think sometimes, you know, it's so hard for us to look back 2,000 years to a place that most of us have never been. You know, you sort of read about the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee or the Jordan River, you know, you read about these places, but most of us have never been there. And, and I think we have trouble sometimes even kind of picturing these people. And there's one way, I mean, this doesn't just apply to this morning, but this would apply to any time you're reading the Scripture. One really helpful way to read stories in the Bible is to always think this, that those people were is at least as intelligent as you. Seriously, that's really important because I think sometimes we just see Jesus like in a terry cloth bathrobe type thing, you know, walking around the beaches of the Sea of Galilee and, you know, strolling around, you know, wherever with a bunch of disciples going, the Lord, you know, what do you want us to do? Like, seriously, I think we think of these guys as the disciples as almost like airheads. And Jesus is, I don't know what, but it's a very serious thing that if you, whenever you read the Bible, think these people were at least as intelligent as we are. Now, they may not have understood microcircuits, but that doesn't mean they weren't intelligent. They were at least as intelligent as we are. They just hadn't discovered some of the things that we had. So I just want you to think for a second this morning, to what was Jesus conscious? What did he think he was doing? Did he think he was going to die some bloody, brutal death? Did he know that was coming? And if so, what was the meaning that he ascribed to us? What was he consciously doing? What did he think he was up to? And what both Paul and Philippians and Isaiah tell us and Luke is that Jesus thought that he was embodying an ongoing story. And this is very important. He knew that his God was up to something. His death was not a one-off, as our British friends say. His death was not something that happened sort of as a fluke or outside of something or something completely new or disconnected from what God had been doing through his people from the very beginning in the calling of Abraham. Now, I've said this to you several times, and I say it because I think it is really very important to become Christian means to fundamentally switch stories, to repent, to rethink everything, to become a part of the people of God. It means to completely rethink everything about your life to whatever it is that you're conscious of, to whatever it is that you, dis- you ascribe meaning to your own life and death, whether you die of old age in a hospital or in some accident. What is the meaning of your life and your death? That's what these stories, and really for me, uh, especially, you know, um, preaching, you know, through the lectionary for the first time in my life, this all became, you know, I've been writing about it. I mean, my whole first book is about this, but beginning with Advent this year, it's just so plain to me that especially the lectionary readings are telling us a story, And a story, as I've said before, that invites our participation. 
So that repentance then, this season we've been going through in Lent, is very much like putting little structures and practices to our life that helps us switch stories. I think when I think about switching stories, remember Michael Jordan, you know, arguably the greatest basketball player ever? Everybody remember that name? At least, even if you don't like basketball, Michael Jordan, remember? Remember he got uh, wild hair, you know, at some point in his career and decided, I don't want to play basketball anymore. And remember he went to play minor league baseball. Remember that story? I mean, it's 10 or 15 years old now or more, but probably you know that story. Well, to do that, he had to switch stories. I mean, I know I played baseball in college we did completely different drills than the basketball team did. We had completely different aims than the basketball team did. We approached our sport completely differently. And so when Michael rethought his life, he had to take on behaviors and practices and ways of thinking that were fit for this new reality that he wanted to embody. And this is what the story of Isaiah and Luke and Paul is telling us. This is why you find these really profound words in Paul, where he says, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead, or reconsidering everything based on what I see happening in this story, I'm now changing everything about my life to embody this new story. Because from Abraham to Revelation 22.5, which says, and they shall rule with him forever and ever. That's what this story is all about. God was calling a people, and God is going to have a cosmic people. Now, I'm no good at science. I probably almost flunked it in high school. I have flunked almost everything in high school, so I probably almost flunked it. So I don't know much about science, but I know this, that I know the cosmos is bigger than even the most brilliant people in the world can articulate. I mean, they try, and they have their sophisticated formulas, and they do their best. But even they would admit, we're not sure we really grasp what this is. So back to what was Jesus conscious during this week that we'll celebrate, you know, properly, as the church has for thousands of years with Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Vigil and Easter. To what was Jesus conscious during this week? And here's the answer, the forming of a people, of you, not just your sins. Let's just stipulate you're all guilty. Okay, let's just pretend we're lawyers for a minute. Let's just stipulate I'm guilty, you're guilty. But for some reason, the governor pardons you. And you get out of jail and you get to go home. That doesn't change your guiltiness. It simply makes you free. It doesn't necessarily change how you feel about yourself psychologically, which is what so much of the gospel in our lifetime has been focused on. It's been all about how do I feel about myself and, you know, am I, am I rid of my guilt and my shame and all that? Well, when Jesus says to Israel, I'm going to deliver you, it didn't mean that the sin that got them into exile didn't happen. It meant that God forgave them. Remember our Lenten readings? The prodigal father pulling up his robes and running to his son. The parable of the tenant farmers, the father who sent wave after wave of prophets to beckon his people back into being what he called them to be, finally giving himself of his own son. And now we're here in Passion Week where Jesus did this. To what was he conscious? Why was he doing this? Was it merely so that we could be free from the sense of guilt that we all carry? No, but that's a really 
deal, and I'm glad to be free from it, aren't you? I've done some bad things in my life, and I'm really glad to be free of that guilt, sincerely. I have, one of the, one of the things with sin is that sin's enslaving. I mean, when you see exile in the Bible, and you think of Babylon, and that's, you know, the exile, or in Exodus, you know, in Egypt, when you think of exile, just think sin. Sin is what caused people to be in exile. Salvation is deliverance from that. And it, but it doesn't just stop at how I feel about myself or where I'm going when I die. It includes those things. But what it does is it constitutes as, a, as us as a people who then are after the manner of Christ, the servant of Isaiah. But we can go back. The Abraham who became Israel. The servant who Isaiah saw would come. The servant came. And 50 days from next Sunday, we'll celebrate the big whoosh of human history when God poured out the Holy Spirit and on all of humanity, everything changed, creating for himself a servant people. This is what Luke sees, and this is what Paul sees, and this is what the story of Isaiah is telling us, that Jesus was was conscious that he was a revolutionary. I mean, that's what he gets accused of, and it was true. Jesus was a revolutionary, which is to say he countered everything that human beings thought was real and good and said, no, this is what it means to be Israel as God intended. Not what you Pharisees think, not what you Sadducees think, not what the Herodians think, not what the Zealots think, not what the Qumran sect or the Quietists or the Pietists think. You guys are all wrong about what it means to be fundamentally human and fundamentally Jewish, or to be God's chosen people. You're wrong about that. This is what it means to be human. And so as we read this morning, all the religious leaders say, he's completely out of phase with us. He's stirring up things. Yeah, you betcha. You bet he is. In the same way that he wants to stir up things in us, and this is what Lent's all about. Okay, what's going on in you that's as wrong as the Herodians were wrong? What's wrong in you that was as wrong as in Peter and when he wanted to cut off the, the soldier's ear? What's wrong with us as James and John, remember, they said to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? At that point, I can always just see Jesus going, oh, like, I mean, you just can't get more wrong than that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you can't get more out of phase with what Jesus was doing. But see, these were people in Jesus' company. Why? Because he was constituting a people. He was making a people for himself who would find themselves caught up into this story. And like Michael Jordan did everything he could to change his mind about basketball and to embody a story of baseball, Lent invites us and this story invites us into looking at our own life and saying, what's out of phase in this part of our life? And how do we embody this story For as Paul said, you look at Jesus. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. And again, I've said this before. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know us all well enough and or whatever, but if we were to just take a look at this societally speaking, I would say as just sort of an amateur sociologist that maybe the number one thing destroying political discourse, economics, commerce, um, the infighting in education, the infighting in religion, maybe the number one thing destroying the soul of humanity right now is the idea of my rights. Rights over responsibilities. 
Oh, I know you're her daughter, but she seems sexually pleasing to me. Well, I know that's your money, but I feel like I can rip it off. I need it. This sense of rights over responsibility is maybe the number one phase in which American culture, if not all of Western culture, if not all of the developed globe, is completely out of phase with Jesus, who said, I did not see equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather I let go of it so that I could become a servant to all of humanity, reconstituting humanity as God intended with Adam and Eve, reconstituting Israel as he intended it when he created him through Abraham, reconstituting the church through the sending and the power of the Holy Spirit that they might become that which I've intended from the beginning, my chosen people who would exist for me taking up the mind of Christ. Not claiming special privileges, but like Jesus, living a selfless, obedient life. One of the things about Luke, we don't have time to really go into this, but one of the things about Luke is Luke, uh, in somewhat different than the other writers, has all these little minor characters in his story. They, they, don't, they don't show up in some of the other synoptics. And one of the minor characters in Luke's story is Simon the Cyrene. Remember Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me? Well, Simon is an icon of like a, a Jew who just happened to wander into Jerusalem at the wrong time and is forced basically by these Roman soldiers to carry Jesus' cross. But he's an icon. He is what Paul had in mind. So is Jesus subverting the nation? Yeah. And, and let's say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, subvert this nation. Amen. Have your way. Start with me. Subvert my heart. Subvert just means to change it. Turn it inside out. Yes, Lord. And in this Lenten season, we cooperate with that. Jesus was caught up, obviously, in this competing agendas between Herod and Pilate and all these various Jewish sects. And he's a revolutionary in the middle of that. He's a dangerous man for sure. Here's why. One of the reasons Pilate and Herod had this little political dance going on is they were all, of course, afraid of Caesar and the, you know, the chief power in Rome. And in Jesus' day, to say Jesus is Lord, you know that phrase, Jesus is Lord, that we have on bumper stickers now? In their days, that was actually a subversive statement because here's what it meant. To everybody who heard this, here's what it meant. Caesar is not. That's what made Jesus a revolutionary. Lent invites us to say, my desires are not. Jesus is Lord. My passions are not. Jesus is Lord. My desire, my will, my things are not. Jesus is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't basic human things that we think about. You get what I'm saying there are things in our lives that need dethroned. They need a revolutionary to come subvert them and throw them over. And Lent gives us a time to do that. So as we enter into this Passion Week, no disrespect for other religious figures, none whatsoever. But for me and my money, and for the smart money for the last couple of thousand years, Jesus is the greatest. For my money, he is the most amazing person to have ever lived. Stunning. I mean, there's, there's no, no other religious leader even makes the claims that he makes. 
not Gandhi, not Buddhist theory. No, there's no religion you can name where you have a founder leader who even makes the claims that Jesus makes. And the crowds of people on Palm Sunday, having heard his works, heard his words and seen his works, began to worship him with palms, saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. You know where those words come from? The end of the story. Revelation. When it's unfolded before John, what this whole big story has meant and that God had entrusted this story to Jesus and that the will of God, as we read this morning, is going to prosper in his hand. When John sees this all unfolding and how it's going to end, that, that God really has reconstituted a people, that everything he dreamed for with Adam and Eve in the garden and Abraham and Moses and the nation of Israel, it's all going to come together through the power of the Holy Spirit. John sees this and says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, honor and glory and praise. So if this Lenten season you find in yourself that contemporary life's a little bit confusing, that what to think, what to believe, who's right and wrong about really big, important stuff, if you feel a little muddled about how to live, maybe a little confused about priorities or, or right or wrong or future plans, then just one last Lenten word, trust and follow Jesus. He's the greatest. You tell me who else you're going to follow if not him. And you tell me why you think somebody else is superior. Because if you stop and think about it, you will find nobody more worthy of following. But that's why we need Lent. Because very quickly, these palm branches moved to confusion. And the very same people started saying, crucify him. That's why Lent is so important to really rethink deeply what is it that we think about Jesus? To what was he conscious? And as I become conscious to that, am I willing for my life to align with that? Or once I see how revolutionary it is, do I kind of move away? Because worship is not just words or prayers or liturgies or singing. Worship is trust and follow. Here's, here's the very last Lenten word. Find yourself in Barabbas. Life confusing. Maybe you find some things out of phase, aren't really working. You got a little bit of that ambivalence in you. You know, you got some palm branch worship, but also I'm not sure about this. This is kind of revolutionary. Find yourself in Barabbas. Barabbas is the icon of the human race for whom Christ took their place. Find yourself in that running father who pulled his robes up to find you and welcome you home and throw a party for you and bring you into this big story and into this big people he's constituting. Find yourself in that father who sent wave after wave of prophets to you. Maybe some of you this morning have been hearing about Jesus for a long time and have never really committed to following him. Well, as we come to the end of this season of a little bit of introspection, I want to say to you this morning, trust and follow Jesus. He's the greatest. And find yourself in Barabbas because Jesus did take my place and your place that we could be a part of this big thing and this big people.
Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com. Thank you.